Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. The show is taking a much-needed break around the holidays, and for the next few weeks, we'll be sharing favorite episodes from deep in the feed that you may not have heard. Up this week is one of my favorite conversations I've ever had on the show with tiny house dweller Carrie Gale. Not only is Carrie's tiny house one of the most unique and well-designed tiny houses I've ever seen, but her transformative story of becoming a tiny house dweller is also really compelling and she's just a joy to talk with. I encourage you to listen to this interview and also go over to the show notes page at thetinyhouse.net slash 109 to check out the photos of Carrie's house. All right, let's get to it. And in the process, I realized I needed to do something radically different with my life. I had so enjoyed the process of making that book and putting it together and expressing myself and creating and writing and drawing that I started to scheme and dream about how I could leave my corporate job. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 109 with Carrie Gale. Carrie Gale sold everything she owned, booked a one-way ticket to Spain, and walked the Camino de Santiago. Upon her return, Carrie embarked to build a tiny house on wheels, where she currently lives in the backyard of a close friend's house. Carrie's tiny house is absolutely amazing, and it has some features that have made it a very popular YouTube video tour on living big in a tiny house. In this conversation with Carrie, we talk about the house and why it's so popular, but also about the journey that brought her to living tiny, including what's it like to sell everything you own and what kind of motivation does it take to do that? How her journey walking the Camino helped inspire her tiny house lifestyle and how we can all apply lessons from her travels to our own lives without having to necessarily sell everything and go and walk this ancient walking path in, in Europe. It's a really fun conversation, and I know you're going to like Carrie as much as I do, so I hope you stick around. Are you fascinated by the tiny lifestyle but not sure if living in one is for you? Relax and let your tiny dreams run wild while you color 15 unique tiny homes inside and out. Coloring is a perfect activity for being stuck at home, especially after you've watched everything on Netflix. The Color Me Tiny Coloring Book includes a variety of tiny houses on wheels and the beautiful nature that surrounds them. The images all come from real photos that highlight the broad range of tiny house shapes and sizes. Each featured home also includes an interior scene to show what it's like to live in a tiny house day after day. So if you want to color a tiny Vardo on the beach, a cozy tiny house on wheels nestled in the snow, or several homes that feature their four-legged occupants, Color Me Tiny is for you. Color Me Tiny is on sale for just $9.99 and ships free via Amazon Prime. You can learn more at thetinyhouse.net slash color. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash color. All right. Kari Gale is an artist and writer specializing in food and travel illustration. She has published two books birthed from her travels in Europe, The Art of Walking, an Illustrated Journey on the Camino del Santiago, 2015, and Portraits of Iona, an Artist's Perspective in Paint and Prose, 2017. She also co-hosts the Pilgrim Lost podcast with her friend and author, Tony Kriz, which embraces the belief that the transformative aspects of pilgrimage can be intertwined with the most normal patterns of daily life. Kari lives and works in Northeast Portland in the tiny house she built in 2018. Kari Gale, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ethan. I'm glad to be here. Very glad to have you. I loved the tour of your tiny house on, on Living Big in a Tiny House, um, as did apparently 1.9 million other people. Ooh, it's up to 1.9. That's exciting. Yeah, it's up to 1.9 million in just, in just four months. Um, so it's clearly really resonating with people. Um, what do you think it is about, about your house that is really just 
capturing so many people's hearts and minds. You know, I've actually, I was thinking about that the other day. I do, I, you know, I have gotten my share of, of emails and inquiries and comments. And I, I think I, well, first of all, I got a lot of inquiries from fairly tall people. <laughs> so I'm six foot three and uh, my house is built to accommodate a very tall person. And most tiny houses are, are not necessarily built that way. We, we all know they look you know, very standardly have a loft and most kitchens are under the lofts, you know, in, in the plans that we've seen online and in the YouTube videos. And so, because I, I worked with my father, Larry, who is an architect to design a house. So my father is actually six foot nine. <laughs> and so we're a very tall family. Um, and, uh, so having, being able to accommodate having my family in, in my tiny house and not being uncomfortable and then just living in it, we decided to do some things that were um, that were a little bit out of the box, as it were. So, designed a bed that 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 um, I almost said the word levitate. That's quite funny. It kind of seems like it levitates. It, <laughs> it 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 is it moves up and down on a on a on a basically a pulley system, and most of the time, honestly, about ninety five percent of the time, I have the bed down. The bed then lives right over the the living area. But what that does is it allows me to have a really open ceiling area. It feels the the ceiling feels really tall and high. I'm not standing under a platform to be in my kitchen. So I think the other thing that resonated with people was this really clean design. I think a lot of on the exterior and on the interior, I think a lot of houses, a lot of folks really like kind of the log cabin feel and kind of the the idea of small meaning a little bit more storybook and have gone a little bit more in that direction. But we really wanted to design something that was very streamlined, very modern, very simple, and then very light with kind of that Danish modern aesthetic. And so that was the route that I went. And I think people just enjoyed some of the interesting things besides the bed, the shower was the, was the highlight. People love the shower. So the shower sits over the um excuse me the wardrobe sits over the shower space and it moves on track so that was something that people really hadn't seen before most wardrobes are either built into the sides of the house or it's a very small when i when i saw the tiny house shows when i was uh you know doing my research there usually was a tiny little wardrobe where someone would have to crawl over their bed to get to their boxes or so one of the things that is is unique about mine is I do have this large size wardrobe. So I think people just really enjoyed number one that it was really different built for a tall person, number two that it was this very modern aesthetic. And then I think three they just a lot of people really connected with my story which was this idea of simplifying I'm an artist and sort of the backstory of why I got to the tiny house and just enjoyed hearing my story and what it meant to me to simplify and get to a space where I, I could live a simpler life. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, I would agree. And, and I'll, I will say that I'll link to the video, the living big in a tiny house tour on the show notes page, um, which I'll say at the end. And uh, I definitely encourage people to go and watch it because there are some really just amazing ideas in the house that are really, really well executed. So you, you've done both. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. How long did the build take? And if you don't mind sharing, what was what was the total cost for the build? Yeah, not at all. Um, so the build literally took one year. I I started building it. I had well, so when I say I built it, I'm gonna be, I'll be very honest. I hired a contractor, he did all the framing, we got along really well. And then so I decided to work with him basically for a year in helping him and being sort of his on-site assistant. So that meant that I did the 18 runs to Home Depot every day, <laughs> or not, not 18, maybe like three, three, I would say is about a pretty consistent number. I did the tiling, I did the sanding, I did all of kind of that unskilled labor. If you were to just walk in off of the street and not really know, you know, a lot about building. Now I had built, helped my ex-husband, we had renovated a home and we did that for three years. So I was very familiar with the process. And one of the things that was the benefit of that is that I really knew what I did, what I could or couldn't do. I knew that I could help in certain areas. I'm an expert tiler, but I knew that I wanted to hire someone to completely do the framing because they could do that in a, in a, a, a week. Whereas if I tried to do that on my own, 
I was sort of equating time and money and thinking, how much time do I really have to spend on this? And would it be better to hire someone? So I, that's how I, I did that. But so that was, it was done in a year. So we started in June of 2017 and had my housewarming party in June, really literally the same week, a year later. And that was my goal. From top to bottom, uh, soup to nuts, as it were, it was, and that includes everything in my house because I had literally nothing. I didn't have any, any, uh, maybe I had a few throw pillows left over in a box, but it was my mattress. It was all of my furniture, everything. Um, it was 70,000. Wow. And all the labor too. Yes. And, that, and the vast, vast majority of that was my labor. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. And it, the, the house just, it's, it's radiant. So again, I'll, I'll plug Thank people you. going to, to check it out. Um, how has the experience been living in the house now? You're coming on to two years. Has, mm -hmm. has the experience of living in it uh, lived up to what you were, were hoping? Um, yeah, absolutely. I, so I have this really, and when you'll see, you'll see the, it, on the tour, you see where my house is situated on the property of a friend. And that homeowner is my best friend, Tom. And so he has three housemates that I've become good friends with. And so we have this really wonderful community. We cook together every Monday night. Uh, we share sort of some of the, we, that was, that's kind of our communal night. One of us kind of plans the meal and then shops. And so I get this really communal, lovely experience living on this property. So it, it would be very different if it was just someone I didn't know, but that was part of the, the, the process is the very, very first moment that I decided to think about it. I had this conversation with him and he was so excited about it and offered to let me put my house on his property. So this was when it was still an idea, like really literally the first conversation I'd had about it. So unlike a lot of folks, I was really, really blessed in that I had a spot to put it right away. And I had a spot to put it with people that I love. So that experience, I think if I was living, honestly, if I was living really remote somewhere and I'm a single woman, I think that would be really challenging because I'm a really social person. Yeah. And being an extrovert, I like to have that interaction, but I had kind of the best of both worlds because I have my independent space. And then just a few feet away, I have a group of friends that, that I have great community with. So it's been a really, really great experience. One thing that's been challenging and not challenging, it's, I mean, I guess you could say challenging. So when I built the house, I didn't intend that or anticipate I would be working from home. So I ended up getting a job where I work from home, which is fantastic because, you know, not having a car, um, doing, you know, commuting, all of that, I'd love to let go. The only thing is, is I'm, I'm not, I, my situation isn't terribly ergonomic. So I've had to sort of figure out ways to change my space a little bit to accommodate being at a desk all day long. So and that's challenging for anyone in any scenario, but, you know, perhaps if I had known, I might've made my desk also move up and down and have been able to make it a standing desk. And there's some things that I might have changed had I realized that I would be working from home. But other than that, I, I've really loved the experience of it. I still absolutely love the fact that I know every single item of my clothing. I know exactly what I own. There's, there's no box that uh, I wonder what's in there or God, I should really clean that out. I don't have any of those, those thoughts. And that there's a piece to that. And then because my, my, I paid cash for my house. Um, I, my house is mine and I own it. And then I pay a little, a very small, very, very small bit of rent to my friend for his property. And so I'm able to really keep my costs low. And that's why I get to work as an illustrator. Um, I also work for a nonprofit as well, but obviously nonprofits aren't able to pay very well either. <laughs> so uh, I'm able to do two jobs that, that give me a lot of freedom. And, and that, that's like so precious to me. So no, I really love the experience. I'm so glad to hear that. Um, I want to talk about something that you you kind of brought up now that we've we've talked about the house a bit. Um figured we could kind of hit rewind and go back in time a little bit. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so um why why did you decide to build a tiny house in the first place? Can you tell the story of kind of what what brought you to it? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a really interesting story, and I alluded to it for a few seconds on the pod or on the um, the show, but I didn't really have time to go into it. But so I went through a really um, tough divorce back in oh my goodness now 2012, and in that process, one of the things that I did as sort of a grieving a space to grieve what had happened was I walked the Camino de Santiago um, in in the spring of 2013. And for those of you that are, are not familiar with it, this is a pilgrimage route that is uh, a 500 mile walk. It actually is longer than that. Uh, really, that is the, that's the amount of time that most people go walk on it because it's, a, it's basically a walk across the Northern part of Spain. And so most people start at the border of France and then walk across the country to the town, which is the end of the pilgrimage, which is Santiago de Compostela. And so, but you can, it it is a medieval pilgrimage. So it used to be back in the medieval times that people from all over Europe would walk this, this particular pilgrimage route and they would just leave their home. So you can start the pilgrimage in Amsterdam. You can start it in France. You can start it anywhere. But the most common route, which people call the Camino Frances, because it's the route that comes down through France, is the one that I walked. And so I walked that. And in that process, that pilgrimage was really life-changing for a variety of reasons. And when I walked that pilgrimage, I, I had this very, very um, simple life. And we can, come, we can circle back to that, but there were a lot of elements of being on the pilgrimage that were, that were things that I wanted to retain when I went home. I, didn't, I wanted to, to keep those, some of those um, practices or ways of being. And so when I got home, I went back to my job, my corporate job. I had taken a, just a small, like a, I had taken like a six week sabbatical. And so for the next few years, I sort of sat on it, sat on this idea of what, how could I make my, how could I change my life? What could I do that would be different? Because clearly after a divorce, there's this, this re kind of a reset for a lot of people. It's really scary. It can be really scary. I've, I've kind of equated it to a blank canvas. So you know, something happens and your life radically changes and it becomes this blank canvas and you can be afraid of it or you can embrace it and give it, give, give yourself that ability to dream about maybe the things that you had never done before. And so in that kind of blank canvas time for me, I had always been an artist, had always dreamed about doing more art, uh, making it more of a priority. And I had never done that. And so it was always just this very, very side sort of hobby thing for me. So, and and when I say hobby, that isn't, I'm not trying to be, um, that's not a negative comment. It's just a space where in my mind, it was something I did very, very occasionally. And so I decided during that time, after I came back from the Camino, that I would, that I wanted art to be more of a priority. And so I started working towards that. And that actually grew into the idea that I would take these drawings. So I actually didn't even have to go back. So on the Camino, I had brought along a journal, I had brought along these paints and um, I had taken an art class. So with that thought of like, I want art to be more of a party, I'd taken an art class at a, at a local um, college here in Portland and I had a wonderful professor and he was really into journals and journaling art. And so he said, you know, everyone needs to buy a journal and this is what we're going to do our projects in. And at first I was really resistant. And then, and then I jumped on board and I started to really enjoy the process of that. So when I went on the Camino, I had done that class the, the fall before, and I decided, well, I'll take my journal and I'll take these paints and maybe I'll draw and maybe I won't. And I never, ever had drawn on sort of, I wouldn't call it vaca- vacation, but the Camino was a, a strange, it's a strange space. It's not really vacation and it's not something else. It's just very different. It's its own thing. So I, um, on that first day of the Camino, my sister and I went together and my sister's a little bit of a slower walker. She's a little shorter than I am. And she and I would walk together in the morning, but then by the afternoon, my, my stride would lengthen and I, I would get to the destination where I would, we would be staying that night. And so we decided on that trip not to take any cell phones with us. And so we decided to completely digitally free. And so I would arrive in a town, I would find a place for us to stay, but then I would need to let my sister know where she wouldn't know where we were staying. So I had to go back to the path that would weave through the, weave through the town and sit down and wait for her. And so in the sitting down and waiting for her, 
I would pull out my journal and I would draw something. And I did that the very first day. And then I did it the second day. And then I ended up doing it every single day of the Camino. And so I had this started to develop this practice of art. And that was one of the things that when I brought back with me, I, I wanted to continue this practice of, of, of art making. And so I ended up with this whole journal full of drawings. And in the, in the process of sort of coming back into my daily life and coming back to my, my corporate life in Portland, I, I started to put this, these drawings together into a book. And that was what formed my very first book, which is called The Art of Walking. And so it just documents my, my, my trip on the Camino. And it really, I never intended to do it as a, like, I'm going to sell this book and I'm going to make some money. It was really this, for me, it was really the closure of that whole experience of the grieving process. It was really, it was really clarifying and, and, and really almost like a, uh, yeah, I use the word closure. It was closure for me of that whole experience. So I self-published that book. And in the process, I realized I needed to do something radically different with my life. I had so enjoyed the process of making that book and putting it together and expressing myself and creating and writing and drawing that I'm like, I have to do something absolutely different with my life. So I started to scheme and dream about how I could leave my corporate job. Now I had been at my corporate job for 10 years and anyone in a corporate job knows it's hard to leave. There, there's some significant golden handcuffs there with your 401k and your bonuses and your, you know, even your time, you know, you realize, oh, if I left this job, uh, I might not get that, you know, I have to start back to grand zero with my time off. Right. And you, you know, you've, for most people have built up a lifestyle that requires that level of income. Absolutely. And you think to yourself, if I leave this job, I'm going to, and this was what I thought all through that 10 years, if I left this job, I would have to find another job that was of a similar income in order for me to maintain what, how, the way that I live. And so, so, be, so around July of that year, I, I finished, I published my book in June. And so in the month of July, at the beginning of July, I set a date on the calendar and I said, I'm going to quit this job. You know, I, I did some, I was trying to figure out how to save enough money and what was I going to do and how I was going to pay off my bills. And so I set a date like the following May, I think it was nine months, nine months. And I said, I'm going to leave here in nine months. And I told a bunch of friends and I said, hold me accountable. I'm going to do this thing, which I advise if you ever want to do something, tell people about it, because that if you keep it to yourself, you'll probably like, reason yourself out of it. It's really good to have people hold you accountable to the things that you're dreaming about. Um, so I, I put the date on the calendar and then about a week later I was walking through my office and I, I thought to myself, I don't know that I can do this for nine months. And I, I don't ask God for signs very often, but I said, I just need a sign. Am I going in the right direction? Am I, you know, putting all my energy in this way? Is this, is this the right thing to do? That afternoon, I kid you not, 4.30 in the afternoon, my boss asked me to come into his office and he said, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but we're letting you go. And I was the happiest person. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I got, so I, they had just unknowingly to the entire department, they were restructuring and long story short, they just restructured my job and they gave me a severance package. And I literally called the airline that night and figured out, actually, I think I bought the ticket the next day, but I bought a ticket, a one-way ticket to Spain. Uh, and I, a month later, so I stayed a month to get my affairs in order. And I basically sold everything I own. Now this is pre-tiny house talk. This isn't, wasn't preparing for a tiny house. This was just sort of, I wanted to clear my plate. I wanted to get rid of all the things and um, kind of have this fresh start. So, so I sold everything. Do you and, think you could have, sorry to interrupt, but I'm so no, fascinated. No, just jump in anytime. <laughs> like, do you think that before that moment, like you would have had the kind of fortitude to sell everything you own? Because I'm sure you had things that you really liked. I just, you know, I know, I know people who just struggle so much with, with the idea of letting things go or they know they need to, but yeah. it seems like this thing happened and it, it almost allowed you to just push through. Yeah, I, I would say the, that factor. And then I had, because I, 
through my divorce, I had already gone through two sort of downsizing. So it wasn't as dramatic. I want to tell, tell, you know, listeners, it wasn't as dramatic as that sounded in that I had a house, a large house that, you know, as I said, my ex-husband and I have remodeled and we spent all this energy on and gotten all this, you know, fancy stuff and my, you know, West Elm couch that I wanted. And, and then when the divorce happened, really, it, it was a really, I wouldn't, it wasn't easy, but there was this feeling of wanting to move on from that. And so I sold the vast majority of things, not, you know, I I had a huge garage sale and downsized from this house to a two bedroom apartment where I live with my sister. And so I had this first big downsizing and a lot of that, those objects were things that were related to my marriage. So that was in, 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 you know, in a strange way, easy. Then when I was in the two bedroom apartment and then decided to travel, I, knew I was willing to let a lot of like almost all of my furniture was furniture that we had bought for this house. And so again, it was this sort of, um, uh, what is it? I'm keeping thinking of the word detoxifying, but it's not that it's, um, just like a cleansing process. You know, you're, 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 um, letting go of these things that have carry some emotional weight. So for me, because a lot of that was tied with my marriage, there was an ease in letting it go and sort of a, a relief. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I think I was very unique in that and that I didn't, I didn't have, I've never been a sentimental person at all. And so saving things, holding on to things was never an issue for me. And in the process of that, of that letting go phase, you know, there were certain, there hasn't been really anything I've let go of that I thought, oh, I wish I had that back. And I, I think a, a huge aspect of it is that when you, you know, you, we go back to Marie Kondo, you know, and if you look at an item in your home and, you know, does it spark joy? And everyone laughs at that phrase, but it's really true. Like, do you love that thing? And I think I was able to go through and there, I still have, you know, in my tiny home, I have, you know, a handful of objects. I have something from my grandmother, you know, my great grandmother. I have, I have my grandfather's painting. I have this little object that my dad made me. I have a thing from, I have little objects each, but each one is so special. I don't have, I don't have my grandmother's spoon collection because I'm not a big, I don't collect spoons. I don't need to hold on to that. So yeah, I, I, I definitely, when I talk to people, I know that I'm a unique person and I, I don't think that they can do, um, maybe as quickly as I can, like encouraging people to, you you just, you can just get rid of everything because that's not true, but it is really one of those things as a process. And mine was a three-step process. So does that answer that question a little better? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it's kind of fascinating. Um, so anyhow, I interrupted you. You, you no. bought okay. this one-way ticket to Spain. One-way ticket, you so spent I headed the month. off. Yeah, yeah. and I, I went back and I walked a different route of the Camino de Santiago. So there's actually 12 different routes. And I walked the Portuguese route, which is called the Camino Portugues. And I walked it from Lisbon north up to Santiago, which is a little shorter. It's only about 350 miles. And I did that on my own, um, which is a really wonderful experience very different much it's a much less crowded route so it was a very solitary experience and I basically started that adventure not knowing when I would come home and so I had about six boxes that I'd stored and those boxes are are the things I have in my tiny house now they're books and special you know like I said special things from from family things that I wanted to keep artwork and then like kitchen supplies. And that was it. There was not really a lick of furniture that I saved. Um, I did save my grandmother's rug, which actually is now sitting in Tom's house, which is kind of funny because it's, it's bigger than the size of my tiny house. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I basically traveled for 15 months. And the whole goal was to give myself this space and time to just create. So I basically spent the entire 15 months drawing and blogging my way through the places where I was staying. And it ended up being, I spent most of my time in the UK and Spain with a little bit of time, like a month in France with a friend. Um, I ended up doing this artist residency, as you had noted prior in your introduction on this little tiny island called Iona, which is in the Inner Hebrides off the coast of Scotland. And it takes, you know, two ferries and a bus ride you know, and a train ride. It's not an easy, easy place to find, but once you get there, it's, um, it's a magical place. It's, it's, um, it only has about 150 people 
and this island in Scotland is you can you can walk around it in a day. Um, and I lived in this shepherd's bothy, which uh, it was attached to a hostel, but it was kind of like it's a a bothy is like a caravan, so it's just like a tiny house, just a little bit smaller. And in the in the in the shepherd's bothy, I had a bed and a chair and a table and a light, and um, I had a bucket, <laughs> which everyone sort of laughs. Uh, that you would walk down to the hostel to use the the facilities. But in the middle of the night, if you needed to go, you had a bucket, so which I did use. Uh, so we were in simple, simple surroundings. It was really beautiful though. The owner had done it really, it was, it was a gorgeous little space. And with a view over, you know, I would sit up in my bed and I could see the sea in the morning and the the clouds that would move over the island. It was a stunning place to be. I ended up spending two months there. I spent the month of February and then I came back and spent the month of November there. And I ended up doing a body of work that I took and, and, um, and created my second book, which is the, the one that you spoke of portraits of Iona. So, so, but most of a lot of my art up until that point was just art that I had done. It was passion. It was like a passion project. It came out of the travels and the places that I love. So, yeah. Nice. So it sounds like you were already on this path of transformation. The The pilgrimage, the walk was a step on it, but there were some things that happened before and after that kind of created the whole experience. Yeah, absolutely. I would say, I would say that the pilgrimage, you know, it was almost like the, the, my divorce was sort of the spark. And then it lit something in me that was already had been living there for a long time. And then as I walked the Camino, that, that kind of grew that flame in me. Um, if we were going to use that metaphor and then, and then that just grew and grew. And, and honestly, it wasn't going back and traveling was, was, you know, so I ended up doing that, as I said, for 15 months. And I, I, I didn't know if I was going to travel indefinitely. And, and some people are able to do that, but really I knew that I would want to come back at some point. And I didn't know what that would look like. I had no idea how that would look and what what, what would be the the things that would draw me back? And certainly it was friends. It was family. It was community. I'm such a communal person. I love, I love the relationships in my life. And I really, you know, when you're traveling, it's amazing because you get to meet so many people from all over the world. And I did make some really amazing friendships and that friendships that I, you know, am, am texting with them on a regular basis, but it's not like the people that you've known you know, for 20, 30 years. And so in the process of that, knowing kind of at the end of those travels and actually in Iona on that second, that second month that I was there in, in November, and I knew I wanted to come home. I thought, how in the world can I come home and live in a different way and not go back to the same thing that I did before? How do I not get back onto the same hamster wheel of what I was doing and, and not enjoying my job and, uh, and so it was in that moment, really, that that whole that whole paradigm shift happened where I thought, I don't have to go back and make the same amount of money. I have I need to go back and live differently. And how do I live differently? And so that was really where the tiny house came in. And my sister really was the person that had been really interested in tiny homes for a long time. And when I was in my building my house phase the prior house, I, I thought she was, I thought it was interesting, but I thought she was a little crazy. I thought, oh, there's no way I would ever do that. Well, you know, here I was 10 years later going, this is a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think people may have that. I don't know. Some people have, have had, uh, you know, they have this love affair with tiny homes their whole life, but I was not that person. I thought that's crazy. And so one of the things being that sitting in the spothy in Scotland, being so happy with so little and, you know, I literally would, would say that I was carrying, you know, I was carrying around my backpack and I, I had a, like a 55 liter backpack and that was all I had with me. And so I literally had like two pairs of pants, you know, two shirts, a jacket. And like, I think I had one dress with me, something like that. And so when I would go to a store while I was traveling, because I used to be a big shopper, shopping was my way of making myself feel better. And so I would go to a store, you know, in Europe. I'm in Spain and I see Zara and it pulls me in the doors and I start looking at things and everything looked attractive, but it also was weight. Like not only it was physical weight in my backpack, I thought I have to carry this all over the place. 
And then it would be emotional weight. Like, do I need this? Do I want this? Is it worth it? And so I started to view everything like that. Like what I'm carrying this, this, I'm going to carry this, this is weight. And I carried that idea literally back to the United States where I thought everything I own is weight. And so do I want this weight in my life or do I want the freedom that comes with letting go of it? And so in, in, in Scotland, I started to really process this. And I thought, you know what, going back to my sister's idea that I had told her was crazy that many years ago, I could do a tiny house. I could build a tiny house. Like this is, this is, this could be the solution to my, to my quandary of how do I live when I go back home. I don't need a big house. I'm just me. I'm just a single person. And I know that I can live with very little and be really happy. So how do I start that process? And so that's when I started that conversation. I called my friend Tom and then he said, put your house on my lawn. And from that point on, it was, it, it didn't really waver. Although I did give him the permission to, you know, I said, if you, that was something that you, you know, two months down the road, you're like, wait a minute, I don't think I want that anymore. Up until the point that I, I basically started the the build, you know, he had like a, a nine month window to seven month window to, to pull out if he didn't want to have that. But he was, he was in from the, from the beginning. That's awesome. It seems that, you know, your experience kind of showed you for real that you could be happy living with a lot less. Um, I actually kind of share a uh, a similar experience of pilgrimage before doing my tiny house. And it was in the form of a, of a one month long bicycle tour with my cousin. Mm. Um, same thing, kind of sabbatical from corporate job. Um, but I guess what, what I'm stumbling towards in this question is, um, you know, how to, to touch on what you talk about in your podcast and this idea of, of intertwining the, um, kind of tenets of pilgrimage into to everyday life and how, you know, how we can all incorporate this, even if we're not able to, to take off and do a big, a big travel. Yeah, the, the idea, so some of those, some of those facets that are, I guess, practices and ways of being that, that we, we talk about on Pilgrim Loss are, you know, very, a very, very, like the most simple sort of connection point to like tiny living is this idea of simplicity and minimalism. This idea, you know, when you're a pilgrim, you're, you really, so the first few miles or the first few days of the pilgrimage are really, really interesting because at every hostel, you'll see these tables and tables of things that people had brought with them. They thought they needed for sure. And then as they walk the first few days, they're thinking, I don't want to carry this with me for 500 miles. I don't need two jackets and you'll see their jacket. You'll see their extra pair of this or their that. And so all of that stuff is just put on the tables for free and no one else wants them unless they, you know, something broke, but it's, it's the like antithesis of America where, you know, people are getting rid of things and other people are saying, well, I don't want that either. I don't want to carry that either. (laughs) Um, So it's really this really beautiful space of like, what do I need? What, what is, what is the essence of what I need to, to be, to be, you know, in, in, in this case, walk or be comfortable and, and be able to clothe my body and get through the day. So that idea coming home and saying, what, what is the essence of what we need? And how do we live in this, in this minimalist way so that we're not carrying that, that, that physical and emotional weight? That's one idea. Another idea is this idea of community. So one of the things that on the Camino that is very, um, again, very unique is you come together with this group of people from all over the world. They're, they're, it's this just huge, when I say melting pot, it's like the biggest melting pot of the world because there are people from every walk of life, not every age. They, they, there tends to be more older folks just because they're the folks that have the time to get away for a sick week. But you do really have all walks of life. You have parents with their kids, teenagers, you have graduate students, you have and we kind of grouped them into three groups and we called ourselves the midlife crisis group because we were in our forties. And uh, there was a lot of people in that group that had left a job or had moved, you know, something was something transformative was happening in their life and they needed time to step away and process it. And so this, this community, so we started to, you know, you'd, you'd walk during the day and you could have conversations with people from all over the world. And one of the things I loved about it was this idea that we were all, we kind of, 
we were all at the same, we were all pilgrims. So all of that sort of who's, who's successful, whose job, you know, the way that Americans talk to each other, we are like, what do you do? You know, where do you live? What kind of how we, we sort of, we have this, maybe not, it's maybe not on the surface, but this underlying sort of judgment of, of how we, we talk to people. And are you the same as me really is the question we're asking. And one of the things about the Camino is this beautiful um, sameness that we were able to, we were all just pilgrims and we were walking from one point to another. And you couldn't tell who was who. You couldn't tell if someone was a doctor or someone was a barista. You didn't know, you couldn't tell. So you would have these conversations and you would be really authentic. There was this, uh, this authenticness to the conversations that I haven't found in, in, you know, in, and you would, they, people would open up to you and you would find out more about them in a 20 minute walk than maybe you knew about your best friend. And it was just a really beautiful um, coming together and feeling kind of, we were all people with sort of one purpose. We were all heading to one destination. And so, and everyone was really supportive. Like, oh, you know, if some, a pilgrim had, had issues, we would all try to figure out how to help them and get them to the town where they needed help or did you, oh, oh, you need a, a blah, blah, blah. I have an extra one. Let me give that to you. And it was just this, it was just this really um, different space that I had never experienced before. So that's an idea, this idea of community. Like, how do we interact with each other? How do we care for each other? The idea of walking was just this idea of practice. The idea that, and actually on our last podcast, we're, so this, this, this month on our podcast, we're talking about March as sort of March as a meditation is our theme. And one of the things that I really learned on the Camino is that movement actually is very meditative. And it's really the space where I'm able to meditate the best or not the best, but really the idea of, I've always had equated meditation with something where you have to be still and quiet and quiet your mind. And and um, there was this idea that actually movement and embodiment and being physical in your body was, was so important. And for me, that was the thing that was able to fill my mind. So there's these various aspects of pilgrimage that are things that as just as people that we want to, we want to embrace. I think probably the biggest is this idea of slowing down. When you're a pilgrim, you're walking. And you literally will, you'll notice the slug, you know, you're, you're not zooming by uh, on a, you know, a car or a, there are some, there are some pilgrims on bicycles, but the vast majority are, are, are on foot. And, you know, you're walking 500 miles and that takes about, it took my sister and I 40 days to walk it. We did have four rest days in that 40 days, but you are walking slower. It just, the, the idea that you have to stop and slow down is it's there's no other choice it's not like you're making a choice to do it you're just you're just physically doing that and so you start to notice things you start to notice the way the grass moves across the field and this beautiful green sort of wave you start to like look at the trees differently and notice the differences between them and you take breaths differently and you just you just be you're just present and that aspect of wanting to be present in our lives and seeing beauty in ordinary things, I think is a huge thing that everyone is longing for. We all long for that in our crazy, harried, busy lives. Like, how do we slow down? And so some of the practices that Tony and I talk about on, on Pilgrim Lost or how do we do that in our daily lives? And I think so many people are wanting that and, and desiring that. So it's a really common conversation right now. Yeah. And it, it sounds like, and and you know, weigh in on this, that that somebody who's interested could could almost seek to do a mini pilgrimage. You know, just try to not to get off your phone for the weekend and maybe take a long walk each day and just try to really notice what's going on around you and and then reach out to your community when you get back. Absolutely, that's exactly those the things that Tony and I are bringing into this conversation. Like really simple things, like. We, I think we have equated, you know, sort of, I have to get out of town for a three-day vacation in order for me to, to be able to kind of quiet my mind. And, and really, this, there's many, many simple things that we have right at our fingertips that we can do that help us sort of enter that space of pilgrimage. And yeah, a walk is a great idea. I actually have started, like, I, 
I have some, and actually I won't go into this now, but on a prior podcast, I talked about sort of some meditative sort of almost mantras, but things that you can use in your walking to really, really calm your mind. Because there's, there's certainly, you know, people can walk and there's still a hurried, buzzy, you know, busyness about them and they can spin off into the problems of the day. But there are certain exercises and, and ways of being that are, that are time. They're not from me. They're from like Thich Nhat Hanh and other people who are, have, have written incredible books on meditation that, that are, that we can intertwine with those daily activities to help us really take those breaths and be able to, to be, be more present. Absolutely. Do you think that the the tiny house movement, in a way, is is almost poised to be a movement of pilgrims? Because it, it seems like whether or not you're conscious of that term, it sounds like there's a lot of intersection between living in a tiny house and being a pilgrim, just by the nature of owning less stuff and having a you know needing to and wanting to rely on a community. Oftentimes, people in tiny houses are living in the backyard or in a small community. Um, yeah. Do you think there's an intersection? Oh, absolutely. Uh-huh. Absolutely. I think that, that the, the, the folks who have decided to, to go and live in a, in, in a tiny house and the tiny house lifestyle have, have really like fully stepped into that. And they may not have even realized to what extent or had equated that necessarily in their, in their minds, but, what the positive mental, emotional, spiritual effects would be of living simpler. But when you watch any tiny house show, you, you, and probably all the folks that you've, you've interviewed, like people have those effects. It's like, it's like they've taken a medicine that they didn't even know that's healed some of those things in them. They're, that busyness, that franticness, that, um, that slowing down, they're more present. They're more present to their loved ones because they don't have to worry about they're able to simplify how they make a living. They're able to, they get outside more because they have a smaller space. They don't hole up in their homes. All of those things are, are, are elements of pilgrimage that they're doing without even knowing it because they've entered that tiny house space. And I, I think that as people um, respond more and more, I mean, every single person that I talk to that knows, you know, I actually have gotten recognized a couple times at the grocery store from from the tiny house video, which is quite, quite fun. And very right. like, <laughs> I know I'm having my star moment. I'm like, Oh, being, being recognized. But when people ask me, like, I just ran it across a woman in, in a bakery and she recognized me and she, she said, I, I just so love the show. I'm working on my own right now. And I'm so inspired by your story. And, uh, I think this idea that, that when, no matter what, if they can verbalize it, it's, it's something they long for that simplicity, that freedom, that lightness of being. And, um, so I, I absolutely think that, that, that tiny house, you know, um, what would you say? Dwellers, tiny house dwellers. Um, what is the, what's the proper phrase, Ethan? I don't, there's no official phrase. So sure. Tiny house (laughs) dwellers. I'm not the authority. Oh, come on. No, we need to make, we have, we need to have an official word, but, um, that that the that the the people that have embraced that lifestyle are already embracing that wholeheartedly, and they may just you know maybe one day they will walk a pilgrimage someday, but they are already entering into those practices without with you know without even knowing it because they they are embracing what they find to be as I said that that way of being that's lighter. Nice. Well, one thing that I like to ask all my guests uh, is what are two or three resources so like books or youtube channels or people um that you that you'd like to share with our audience and these could be related to your tiny house resources that helped you or related to to pilgrimage oh yeah um well you actually your book your guide was one of the only things i downloaded (laughs) oh tiny house decisions yes i did i downloaded your your book so i would highly recommend that book um, I had taken a workshop here in Portland that was really helpful. And there's a woman named Dee Williams, and I can send you this information, but people in the tiny house world know of Dee, but I took a, um, it, it was called pad tiny houses workshop. And that was really helpful just to, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like I wrote down a ton of information, but it was just being around a bunch of other people that were already on that 
same track that we could ask those questions that maybe we were like, oh, this is a stupid question, but it really wasn't. It was just, we just were so new to the process to see a tiny house trailer, to talk about a plan, to look it up on a screen. And just, it was almost that first entry point into, I want to build a tiny house, what's next? And so a workshop is a great idea. And if you can do it, it's, you know, obviously things are really virtual and, and there are probably a ton of workshops now online, but I would highly recommend something like that. And then um, as far as, as far as pilgrimage goes, I'd love for you guys to listen to my podcast, to jump in at pilgrimlost.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram at, at pilgrimlost. And we talk, we really are, although Tony and I both walked the Camino and were really changed by it, and that's what was fueled the, the entire podcast to begin with, really the goal is to make it accessible, this idea of pilgrimage and these aspects of pilgrimage you know, to, to every single person that what can you do in, a, in your daily life to really embrace these, these, these tenets? And if you are a tiny house person, you're already way ahead of the game. You're already, you're already doing so many of those things. And maybe you just want to explore different ways of being and doing that. So I, I also, if you do have the heart to go on a pilgrimage and you want to start thinking about it, if you just Google Camino de Santiago, you will find a bevy a bevy of wonderful resources that will start your process. And it's, um, it's something I would recommend to everybody. It's, it's a unique experience that um, changed me and was, was a, probably one of the, the best experiences of my life. So I would, I would highly recommend that. And I could give you some more specific resources, Ethan, some more specific links that you can share with your audience. That would be great. Kari Gale, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. This was wonderful. Ah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much to Carrie Gale for being a guest on the show today. You can find the show notes, including links to Carrie's website, illustrations, and photos of her amazing tiny house at thetinyhouse.net slash 109. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 109. And don't forget to get yourself a copy of Color Me Tiny, my tiny house coloring book for children and adults of all ages. You can get that at thetinyhouse.net slash color. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash color. The price is uh, a special right now for people staying at home of just $9.99 with free shipping to the United States, and that is through Amazon. So you can go right to the product listing at thetinyhouse.net slash color. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.